Recovery Elevator, episode 70. If you think maybe your drinking's not normal, reach out. You can't do anything about it staying silent. I've been wanting to have Third Eye Blind for the intro music for a long time right now, but after doing more research, it would be a dumpster fire of problems using unlicensed music, so I just went ahead and sang it. Anyways, welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, nine months, one week, and five days. On today's podcast, we've got Kelly. We've got Kelly back. She was on episode two, which is about getting outside of your comfort zone. Kelly is a pro at getting outside of her comfort zone. She's just hit two years and nine days of sobriety. We talk about the program a lot in this episode. Again, Recovery Elevator is not affiliated with any 12-step programs. I'm not trying to create a program. However, the program works for a lot of people. There's not a lot of things out there that do work. So if you've tried everything and are still struggling to find a way to string together some sobriety time, why not give that old 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous, a try? Hell, it worked for Kelly, and it worked for me. So before we hear from Kelly, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Kelly, how are you? Awesome. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Kelly, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Today is two years and nine days. Incredible. And Kelly, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. What do you like to do for fun? Well, I'm originally from Michigan. I lived there for 23 years. Um, Grew up in the country for electronics and just played outside a lot. Um, I spent about 10 years in Las Vegas where I met my husband or ex-husband and had two kids there. Worked in casino marketing. Eventually ended up in Bozeman, Montana. Currently divorced, 48 years old. I am a licensed real estate agent, but currently working in a real estate office as their marketing assistant and in client services. My fun really revolves around recovery. All my friends are in recovery. Uh, We camp, we go out, we play games, get outside a lot here in Bozeman, float the river, learn to do a lot of stuff fun sober, and that was a big learning curve, but it's kind of where it's at now. Yeah, before I go to the next question, what you do for fun, did I just hear recovery? Is what you do for fun, <laughs> if I can summarize that, the people in recovery or, or, or what's fun? That's hey, so true. Expand, yeah. expand on that a little bit. So, yeah, going into recovery, I thought life was over and fun was over. And that's so not true. Things have shifted completely. And we have so much fun. We do game nights on Friday nights after our AA meetings. We plan campouts, cookouts. There's a big 4th of July talent show and barbecue coming up. My life is actually more fun now than it ever was it's my world has expanded I have more friends now than I ever thought possible have you ever played Kool-Aid pong on those on those game nights (laughs) not yet but that's a good idea now listeners I'm going to skip a couple questions here questions like uh you know referencing the podcast title when did you realize that you need to quit drinking if you want to hear more about Kelly's story 
Jump back to episode two. That's when we talk about getting outside your comfort zone. And Kelly can do just that. I personally have witnessed Kelly get outside of her comfort zone many times. She just reached two years and she's got nine days today, two years and nine days. Go back to episode two and you can hear her entire story, how she ended up in Hope House, where we met. But I'm gonna jump to the last question that I asked interviewees before we dive deeper in some other topics. What does your recovery portfolio consist of today, Kelly? Maybe walk us through a sample day in your recovery. Um, do you do 12-step meetings, meditation, exercise? Uh, what do you do? Yeah, so every morning um, I have whittled down my reading. It's funny, when I was still drinking, I had hundreds of self-help books, halfway finished, highlighted, you know, dog-eared pages. Um, and it's funny because I've gotten rid of most of those self-help books, and I've whittled it down to three books every morning that I read from. And I usually do that before 7 a.m. It's um, the Big Book of AA, the Little Book of Letting Go, which is some daily meditations, and then also my daily reflection, which is AA-based, or as Bill sees it. And then I also do some writing. I do a gratitude list every morning with about 10 other women that are in recovery. All of them are local here in Bozeman, and it's via email. We come up with one to five things we're grateful for, and some days it's just that list because I can't come up with anything else I might wake up angry or sideways for some reason. If, if it weren't for that list, I don't know if I would find my gratitude first thing in the morning. And then, yes, I do go to 12-step meetings. I am very involved in AA, um, more than I ever thought possible. I try to hit three to five meetings a week, and the Saturday morning meeting is my home group. So I go in between 6 and 7 a.m. and make coffee, 48 cups of coffee, even decaf. I make tea, and... Uh, yeah, I'm still working on the meditation. That doesn't come easy for me. A lot of times I combine that with my exercise, which is walking, and I can do a better meditation while I'm walking and kind, kind of find my serenity there. So that's what it looks like. You know, another component is service work, trying to reach out to other alcoholics or maybe people that don't realize they're alcoholics yet. But that's what it looks like. I don't do it every day, but those days I don't. I'm definitely not having as good a day. Kelly, I'm going to throw something in there that I hope is part of your recovery, and that would be Recovery Elevator. I remember when I met with you in a coffee shop, we first met in the Hope House, which is a crisis uh, management facility. And um, and then I saw you in a meeting, I think a week or two later. No, actually, maybe three months later. Three months later. You saw me walk in the mm-hmm. meeting. Because the day when I met Kelly, um, I was an employee at the Hope House. And there were several days when I walked in and I had my punch card. I'm like, I'm either going to punch in or I'd look at the calendar, the schedule and be like, oh, there's four available beds. Nope. I'm checking (laughs) myself in. And that was one of those days. I remember seeing Kelly outside and it was June or July. It was June. It was June and a nice sunny day. We were in group and what she said just resonated with me because I was at the point of the time in my drinking saga where I was ready to quit. And I could have looked at Kelly and said, Kelly is 46 years old at that time. She's got two lovely daughters and uh, I've got nothing in common with Kelly. (laughs) But however, what she said, and Kelly, I witnessed you, you know, you were two days, you were just came out from the hospital at that point and you were at your bottom, but what you said was inspiring. You were two days ahead of me at that point (laughs) because you know, I was probably drank the night before, but it just connected with me. And we, we, we chatted a bit at the Hope House and then when I came into the meetings, you know, by the, you know, my higher power, I got sober September 7th. I knew I was going to have to do something different to stay sober. That's where Recovery Elevator was born. And then I was like, you know what? 
I, I, I need help with this. I need help with sobriety. I need help with the podcast. I, I can't do this alone. And I'm not just talking about recovery elevator. I'm talking about recovery. I can't do this alone. In fact, I haven't witnessed anybody that can successfully over a long period of time. So Kelly and I went out to a coffee shop. I threw this crazy idea out to her. And again, getting outside of her comfort zone, she's like, sure. And so that is kind of how it started. Kelly, in, in one word, you're amazing. I, I could not have done this without you. You kind of left out the uh, the 10,462 social media posts that you've done, hundreds or maybe in the thousand range of emails that you responded to, the Facebook messages. And so I got to say thank you for that. And let's talk about two years in nine days. For some reason, two years for me is my mark. You know, percentages, I said 5% of 5% of people make it to two years. 5% of people, when they decide to quit drinking, only make it to 90 days. And then it starts over. 5% of those people make it to two years. The deck is fully stacked against us. So I'm sure you've had a lot of pats on the back, but congratulations, Kelly. Thank you. Nice job. Yeah. And tell us how it, how it feels. It's surreal, honestly. I looked at my um, recovery elevator sobriety tracker that morning and it's so weird to see some zeros in there, like two years solid. There's zero days, zero minutes, zero seconds. It was totally surreal. And it, for me, the second year came a lot easier than the first because the first I was completely sideways for a good three weeks before that sobriety date hit. And I don't even know why. I think it was looking back, um, which I've kind of embraced not looking back so much now that I'm at two years. But that first year looking back at oh my God, I, I hurt so-and-so and the guilt and the regret of things I didn't do and the blackouts I had and the things I didn't remember with my kids and oh my gosh, so much of that stuff that first year was still really fresh. So I think the second year is a little easier. I've been a little bit more, I've learned to be more gentle with myself, like letting go of all of those things I may have missed. Because what I need to do now, it is an AA cliche, but live one day at a time. And one day at a time, isn't just drinking, but it's everything. If I don't live the one day at a time, then I am stuck in all those blackouts. Talk to me a little bit more about one day at a time means for you. Um, wow, it, it's really just putting one foot in front of the other. And it has filtered into, okay, I don't want to drink today, or I don't want to drink this hour, which is like it was in early recovery. But one day at a time, if, if my relationship sucks that day, I just have that one day. I have to fulfill those needs one day at a time too. Parenting, it's the same thing. You know, I have to do this for one day. Today I have to just parent the best I can. And it kind of just goes into everything. And it's hard to remember sometimes when I get stuck in my own head. You know, a week from now, is my daughter going to, you know, run away? Well, I don't know. A week from now she might not be mad. But what I have is right now, when I was still drinking, who had done me wrong the week prior? Who was going to do me wrong a week from now? Because I was the victim all the time. Nothing was my fault. I didn't claim ownership for anything. So living one day at a time, you kind of just have to put all that other stuff on a back burner. You just don't have time in your day for it. And I kind of just came up with this analogy here. It's, it's easy to do the one day at a time thing when you look at your task list. You know, you wake up in the morning on some of those days, you're like, man, I've got a lot to do today. I've got to drop the kids off. I've got to sand my deck. I've got to wash this and that. But then after that's done, you get everything done, that's fine. But you know that just today is going to be a really long day. But like you said, when you start thinking about 
you know, oh my gosh, like, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm parenting is really hard today. <laughs> and, but it's hard to just reference that for one day. You think the rest of your life parenting or the rest of your life, not drinking is going to be ridiculously hard. And it just doesn't have to, you don't even need to think about that stuff because I guarantee it. Those problems may or may not be there in the future. I mean, most likely all problems will still be there, but just focusing on one day has been monumental and sure it's a cliche you hear all the time. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when I just sit and stop and be like, wait a second, Pablo, this is just one day. Tomorrow is going to be completely different. And Kelly, on June 9th, we both live in Bozeman, Montana, which is a mecca for drinking. And it's also totally. you know, just <laughs> as good a place as any to get sober. But on June 9th, your two-year sobriety date, I was driving in your neighborhood and I saw bounce houses. I saw a balloon on a, a bunch of balloons tied to a mailbox. That was your place, right? Oh, yeah. No, not at all. I was uh, at work that day and just it was just another day. I, you know, another one day at a time. It was my sobriety birthday. I had a lot of virtual hugs, like you said. Yeah. And um, pats on the back at work, which is amazing because I'm out about my recovery. And the people at work are proud. And it's cool that they don't tiptoe around me. They're like, awesome. What's it mean when it's your sobriety birthday? I saw it's your birthday. Is it your birthday? And I'm, I, so I'm explaining belly button birthday, how that's your biological birthday and sobriety birthday. But no, that was just an ordinary day. And then that afternoon I got a call or a text if I could give a friend a ride to a meeting. And I thought, well, must be her car just broke down. And I had to work and I couldn't get there or I couldn't pick her up. But when I got to the meeting, I saw her sitting there just forlorn and looking so sick and sad. And she had relapsed. Yeah, it was hard because she started the program before me and apparently has been in and out of the program. But I've never witnessed her relapse before. So after the meeting, I went up and I just gave her a big hug and... She just held on for dear life and said she was in so much pain and was really scared. Makes me sad. I want to talk about just how volatile this is. You know, Recovery Elevator episode 69. Um, you know, for my meditation in the morning, I tool around on the piano. And there was a little <laughs> piece that I was working on. And I recorded it and I started talking over that just about how volatile and how anything can change on the, on the drop of a hat. And you mentioned when you spoke to this girl, she was in the grocery store and, and she ended up in the wine aisle. Yep. Um, some stores are smaller. The Coca-Cola might be on the other side of the wine aisle. And, and she said something like a, just a fleeting thought came into her mind. She acted on it. And what was that thought? She just, um, I said, what happened? How did this happen? And she said, it's just like they say it happens. I just thought I could have a glass with dinner. And she <laughs> said, next thing I knew, there was a bottle of wine in my cart. And then like five days later, she came to and had been on a five-day bender. How long had she been sober before she got that wine? I don't know for certain, but I think about maybe eight, no, 18 months. 18 months. Mm -hmm. And listeners, I'm just past 18 months. September 7th is my two-year mark. You know, what I thought was like, well, as soon as I get a month, I'm good to go. Let's do this. <laughs> But it's, it could happen at any moment. Sure, it's scary, and I'm not getting sober or staying sober out of fear, but it's these are conversations that I think are good to have knowing that it can happen at any moment. Right, Kelly? Totally, and I, I see these as opportunities. I mean, while she breaks my heart and I'm heartbroken for her, it was also a reminder of, shit, I do not want to do that. I mean, just seeing the shaking and the pale skin and... You know, I ended up taking her home after the meeting and there were some friends there that were giving her a good meal. And 
a few hours later, her color came back, and I told her that. I'm like, you finally look better. But just a, a stark, sad reminder of how vicious this disease is. It could be me. Like, I could go, hey, it's two years today. If not for seeing her, who knows? I could have ended up at the grocery store. Alcoholism. I don't want to talk to you about the ism, the incredible short memory. One thing that this disease is great at doing is erasing your memory. You forget just how bad it was. And when we hear stories like this, and when you walk into the rooms and you see somebody that was sober for one year, two years, I, I saw somebody who was nine years, 19, 29 or 19 years one time, they relapsed. It's the incredible short memory. So you said it perfect. Um, this is an opportunity mm-hmm. to just to realize how volatile it, it was. And, and Kelly, you sent me an, an article about another woman we interviewed on the podcast. Her name's Felicia. It was all about ex- episode 69. I, I cover in that episode. Tell me more about that. Yeah, oftentimes in the local paper here, I'll see a headline, usually on Facebook. I don't read the actual paper, but it'll say so-and-so or, you know, Belgrade woman on drunk driving spree. And I hesitate to open the article to read more because I don't want to see who it is. And this day I opened it and sure enough, I knew who it was. And again, my heart just broke because I know her struggle. And I also know that she is such a good hearted person and a loving mother and wife. Then it just breaks my heart and shatters me and then to see this news footage on the evening news you know in your orange jumpsuit oh my god it's like this person is thriving or was thriving an employee and a student and a mom and it's any one of us it's not the hobo under the bridge it is you and me and it just sucks the life out of me every time I see another one of those headlines you know and there was another one yesterday someone walked away from a pre-release center and they found him deceased out at Ferry Lake. Again, his was a drug situation, but daily, daily there's these headlines, and it makes me sick, and the other thing I don't do anymore is read the comments attached to these articles because it's so hard to see the normal, I hate to use that word, but the normal community, how they respond to these DUIs and these alcohol-related incidents, and I don't blame them. I don't blame them, but I see the other side of the coin now. It's like, oh, I'm so torn, but I can't read them because I want to get in there and defend these people that are my friends. I was just going to say, you can't blame the normal drinkers. Mm -mm. They are reacting on behalf of the stigma, the stigma that has been created over hundreds of years, especially with the media and the way things are reported. Uh, Budweiser Super Bowl ad that I've talked about a couple of times this podcast, that didn't help anything. Didn't. Basically said, if you drink and drive, you're a complete moron didn't mention that uh, maybe your brain chemistry is different than other people. And we've been trying to institutionalize, criminalize addiction out of people. And do you think that works, Kelly? No. No, it's too close to home for me. Like, I know I know that rehabilitation is better than institutions or whatever, or jail. I get it. I know people need to go to jail for the crimes they commit. And it is a crime. But what precipitated the crime? It's a disease. It's not a lack of morals. It's not a lack of responsibility. It's a disease. And that disease feeds to the irresponsibility. But let's start where it begins. And, and breaking the stigma is a huge part of that. And I see, I see nuggets of that happening in society, but it's not strong enough yet. Felicia, if for some reason you listen to this podcast, you're, if, if, if what I know right now, you're still in jail with a $30,000 bond, probably feeling pretty alone and isolated, you've got two people in your corner rooting for you absolutely we are hoping for you i'm not 
I'm not condoning drunk driving. I've done it myself, and, and that is wrong. But we're rooting for you. This is a disease, and the, the deck is stacked against you. You know, and I might add, I numerous times a week drove drunk and admit that my kids were in the car, and that makes me sick. Those are, one of, those are some of the things that still turn my stomach. How I never got caught is just by the grace of God. It could have been me any Monday through Friday, any one of those days. And it could have been me too. Could have been, but it's a yet scale. If I start <laughs> drinking again, that's going to happen. I'll probably get a, a dump truck or, a, you know, like a full, full on semi truck to tip over. Now let's switch gears just a little bit, pun intended there. And let's talk about the pink cloud, Kelly. So you <laughs> got sober and you've been on a pink cloud for two years and nine days, right? No. <laughs> Wait, what? No? Right. So there's this app called Time Hop that takes you back whether you want to or not, what you were doing a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Two years ago, my face was fat. Oh, me too, because my liver wasn't functioning. So I was totally swollen. Um, and I loved that pink cloud. And when I went to meetings at AA, I didn't even know what the hell they were talking about. They were like, she's just on the pink cloud. Because I was like, this is great. Oh my God, I can't believe I waited this long to get sober. And uh, I have a friend who's a very good friend who now tells me I used to just piss her off. She'd be like, you are way too happy. You know, you are one of those people in, in AA that just pissed me off. I don't get it. So I did finally learn that the pink cloud was, um, you know, just this euphoria you feel the first, I don't know. For me, it was probably four months. Four months. That, that's it. And is, is that for everybody or? Uh, no, I think it varies, you know. And I definitely went through my period where I wasn't sure I wanted to be sober. You know, I don't know what that, what kind of cloud that was, but it went away. The pink cloud goes away. It did for me. And then reality sets in. And it's like they say, you can take away the drink, but there's still all this stuff under the drink. All the stuff you've been pushing down in your psyche for years, you, it comes bubbling up. And um, that's what happened. When my pink cloud went away, reality started setting back in. And for me, it was learning how to deal with reality without the drink. And that's not easy. And so what worked for you? I really had to jump into the program. I said I was on the fence. I thought, well, I could probably do this on my own. Well, how long were you in the program, so in mm -hmm. AA, before you started the steps? Oh, probably nine months. Oh, okay. Yeah, it took me a while. And I'm, I, we'll probably get to this, but I'm just now on step six at two years. But I didn't start the steps right away. I didn't have a sponsor right away. And people kept telling me, don't, why don't you have a sponsor? You're going to relapse if you don't have one. So I finally grabbed one, and she was awesome. Um, we never opened the big book, but we had a lot of tea together and toast together. And she, I ended up, she, she helped me a lot the first three or four months. But then I did get another sponsor to help me with the steps. Gotcha. And, and so you, your first sponsor, you found out it wasn't the best fit. And no. How, how did you make that transition where feelings hurt? Um, oh, it was awful. There, there's a lot on the line though, right? Yeah. I, I really felt vested to this lady. I really enjoyed her. I, I picked her because we talked about books. We had a great conversation at an at a AA barbecue about books. I'm like, God, I think she could be my sponsor. Well, we did enjoy talking about books and we really enjoyed tea and homemade jam. She makes really good jam. But I just decided I wasn't even getting started in the program and I needed to get started to deal with my life. And I sat on it for four weeks. How was I going to tell her? I was so worried about breaking her heart because, you know, it's all about me and I'm going to break someone's heart. And I stewed on it and stewed on it. And um, I finally think I left her a text message. We played phone tag long enough. I thought, well, I am justified in just leaving her a voicemail. And she was totally fine. 
she was just as they said she would be you know that's fine you know you move on it's probably time you know you don't have to stay with one sponsor we get something I think at all stages and you know maybe the one I have now is awesome and she is awesome but maybe another two years down the road I'll be at a different phase in my world my my life you know I'll have kids almost in college by then who knows yeah, my sponsor is a badass, but he doesn't make homemade jam. But uh, so you're on step six. What? Uh, how come it's going so slow? Or are you at your right pace? I, I've learned that I am at my right pace, but I sat on step four for a good four to five months. And I have heard that um, after I did step five, my sponsor said, oh, my God, congratulations. A lot of people don't get here. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, no one wants to do this. Step four is brutal. I've heard a lot of people just don't call back when you, right. you, know, you, you have the meeting about step four. You tell them what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, great. Let's meet uh, next Thursday at 3 p.m. Same coffee shop. See you then. Yeah. And a week later, you're just sitting there and having coffee alone. Yeah. So step four took me forever, but I was really hung up on the format. I was writing like a novel of all of my character defects and my resentments. And she was like, no. Let's not do this. Just write two sentences. You're going to tell me about this in step five. I don't need you to write it all out. We're going to talk about it. That was like, that lifted the whole weight off me. I was like, two sentences? I can totally do this. So I had three pages of resentments, two sentences each. And then my fifth step was a four-hour conversation. And that was that was the most emotional part of my sobriety so far, in a good way. Like, I know a lot of people don't have the experience I did. But I seriously do feel that my higher power was there because what I thought I had to deal with in my fifth step was nothing that came out. Like a whole bunch of other stuff came out I didn't expect. So Kelly, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, that I am enough, that I am worthy, that I am smart. Those are the three big ones, you know, just never feeling that I was enough. And that's something I'm still dealing with and will. I don't think I've, my fourth step is not my last fourth step. And I don't think any of these steps are my last one. I covered a lot in my fourth step, and it's given me a chance to look at myself with some criticism, which we don't like to do, and kind of figure out what I've buried all these years. And a lot of it is my self-worth, and that's not everybody else's fault. So you're telling me that you might be part of the problems that (laughs) came out on the fourth step? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's amazing when I did that fourth step, then you break it down into three different categories and my biggest thing is fear fear drives everything fear drives for me fear drives jealousy it drives my lack of confidence you know what am I so afraid of that's where I'm at now and these character defects on step six and seven man those are tough like I thought the fourth step was tough and I don't want to scare anybody away like these steps are amazing and they're tough for a reason because we have to deal with this shit so now I'm dealing with that fear That's my big one. It's kind of amazing when you can connect the dots. Like you said, that really long conversation you had. When I first started on my fourth step, I was loving it. I'm like, oh, Timmy, I'm going to fill this page about you. Oh, and there's Rick, there's Mikey, (laughs) and there's Tony, there's Tom, there's Brady, there's Sean, there's Mark. And then there's a BMX bike with the chain that just fell off and I was riding at 45 miles per hour. You're going to get a whole page BMX bike. (laughs) And then when it is all compiled, I had to read it to, you know, my sponsor who doesn't make homemade jam. It all came together. The dots just started to connect. I was just like, ah, damn it. It's me. I'm the problem. It's It's not like Tony Rick, the BMX bike, the the homemade jam that I'm not eating. It's me. I am Mm -hmm. the freaking problem. But that's when the rubber hits the road. Have you, have you witnessed that? Oh, totally. 
And I left there so emotionally drained. Like I was sobbing, which is something else I didn't expect. I was like, because I was like you on the fourth step. It was jovial. I was like, oh good, I finally get to write what all these people have done wrong to me. I was enjoying the fourth step. And then that fifth step, I was like, why am I sobbing? What is wrong with me? And my sponsor's like, you are doing great. This is exactly how it's supposed to be. But she let, so she took notes. And on my notes, she left me this blank box. And all it said was, what is the harm I've caused? And I went back to her last week and I said, I just realized this box was here. What does that mean? She's like, because of your character defects that came out of your fifth step, what harm did you cause? Now you need to work on that. And that's what we're going to ask your higher power to help. You have to find the willingness to remove those. That empty box is a tough one. What's the harm I caused? Man, but on the other side, she's like, I also want you to make a list of your assets. It's really easy to find your character defects. But what are your assets? So I sat down this week and did that. I have 15 character defects and five assets. It is hard to pat myself on the back. What am I good at? What's good about me? That's a struggle in recovery. And Kelly, let's talk about cravings. Do you have cravings? You know, I don't. And I don't want to make light of that. I know I have thoughts. I have, like my friend that relapsed, I would love a glass of wine with dinner. Keyword there, A. There's no A glass of wine in my life. There never has been. There's no one. No, it would be a box of wine or a month of a relapse. So I just, I don't have the cravings. I was thinking about it the other day, watching another employee getting ready to leave work at about 4.50 p.m. She was scurrying around the office and hurrying and super agitated. And I was like, God, I bet she wants to get home to have that glass of wine. And that is totally me. I would, on a Friday afternoon, I would start counting down at noon. God, just four more hours. What kind of, how fast can I get out of here? Couldn't make the time go any faster. And it was so driven by that, that craving. Often didn't make it home. And this is not a big town. Any commute here is five minutes. And I would often stop at the gas station to get a roadie or a six pack for my two mile drive home. So I, I'm happy to say the cravings today are gone. You know, the, my cravings went away completely right around month six and seven. But I still have the, it would be nice. Mm -hmm. For example, when I gave my brother's best man speech, I had the, it would be nice if I could take the edge off. It would be nice if I didn't have to feel these emotions that I'm feeling right now. I get a lot of those, but it's different than a craving. And it's, it's a wonderful feeling to have. And you know, what have you learned about yourself in sobriety, you know, apart from the steps? Oh, I guess the biggest thing is that I am strong. I just never gave myself credit for being a strong person. You know, I remember when I got divorced, my family of origin was pretty mad at me for ruining my life, is what they said. And my mom in particular was like, what are you going to do if your car breaks down? What are you going to do if you need a new washing machine? I was like, I don't need to stay married. If that stuff happens, I'll handle it. And I think that really my divorce did kind of send me into my spiral. I mean, I can almost tell you the day my drinking turned on me. And my divorce really did fuel that flame. But out of that, I have proven to myself, I don't need to prove to anybody else how strong I am. Life is certainly not easy being divorced or being in recovery. Single mom. Oh, single mom. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. Right. And you know, I don't do it well certain days. I have bills unpaid. My internet's shut off at home right now. But I'm still, I still consider myself a strong person. Am I making the choices I need in recovery to be a good functioning adult? Yes. 
And I think that for me, the biggest thing I've learned is that I can be a good role model for my kids. And that's something I feared that I lost during all those blackouts. Kelly, it doesn't really matter what I think, but I think you're doing a fantastic job. Well, <laughs> thank you. In, you're doing great. And Kelly, what is your proudest moment so far in sobriety? Well, I guess that kind of goes back to being the role model. My daughter came to me in December, my oldest daughter, um, to let me know that she had an addiction of her own. And she came to me before she got in trouble, before she blacked out, just in tears because she was scared. And there is no way in hell she would have come to me prior to my recovery to let me know, or she wouldn't have trusted me. I wouldn't have been awake. Let's, let's just get to the bottom of it. I would have been passed out while she was scared and struggling in her own addiction. For me, when she came to me that night and said she had to talk to me about something, that was the farthest thing I thought that was wrong with her. But the fact that she trusted me enough to come to me and then to tell me as we're sitting on the bed, you know, she asked me, you know, I don't understand what's wrong with you right now. And I was like, well, why? What do you mean? She's like, you're not yelling at me. I said, well, I'm not mad. I'm scared for you, but I'm so proud of you for coming to me before something really terrible could have happened. And I think that she was probably getting in a situation where other things had been offered to her and it scared her enough that she came to me. And that's a gift of recovery. There's no way that child and I would have had this dialogue otherwise. Kelly, you created an environment as a parent where your kids, they felt like they could come to you about drugs and alcohol. Listeners, Kelly at recoveryelevator.com is her email address. If you're a parent right now, <laughs> ask for her how-to manual because um, I'm sure every parent wishes for an environment like that. Hey, mom, you know, I'm smoking pot and you know, I really like to quit. That's a conversation that never happens. No. That is amazing. Kelly, you've accomplished so much in sobriety, but I also want to talk to you about goals. Maybe what have you not accomplished yet in sobriety? <laughs> well, it's funny because in sobriety, I've, I know... I felt like this rebirth, like I sat there one day, maybe six to eight months in, probably around my first interview, feeling like I don't know who I am, but oh my God, I can do anything. I don't have to stick to any mold that I have currently formed for myself or through the years. I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years and I left, I got divorced and was like, oh my God, what do I do? I have no skills. That's not true. But I do remember about eight months thinking, I can do anything. What do I want to do? And I'm still there. Like, I still have no clue what I want to do. I'm 48, 49 in August. But you feel like you can do anything, which is a feeling that I had when mm -hmm. I was, you know, from birth to about 13, you know, and then freshman year of high school started. But that feeling that you can do anything is the best feeling in the entire world. And you have that right now, right? Totally. Yeah, I, I took a job um, a year ago in August. And I took it because I needed some structure. I know it's not my career. But I was self-employed, and I was self-employed while I was drinking, and that gave me a whole lot of freedom to feed my addiction. But I was at a point in my life last summer where I just needed some structure. I told my boss now about my recovery. I said, I just want a job where I go in, you give me some tasks, I finish them, and I go home. But I do sense that I'm outgrowing that. It's served me well for the last year, and I'm not saying I'm leaving that job, but I do need some more growth for myself. And I'm trying to find opportunities within that field that could offer me that. Let's talk about what we've learned about ourselves and other alcoholics while doing recovery. Oh elevator. my gosh. Oh, it's been amazing. I just thank you so much for getting me involved in the project because I didn't mention that as my recovery portfolio in the beginning, but I am on there every day, as you all probably know. 
But yeah, we are a sensitive lot of people. That is for sure. And I mean that in, in both the, the positive and the negative. We alcoholics really take things to heart and kind of have to use kid gloves sometimes and realize the sensitivities. But the thing I love about it is we're all so similar. That's where, you know, Paul says all the time, look for the similarities, not the differences. Well, in a group of alcoholics, similarities are screaming. It is amazing to me, and me too, me included. I can take things so personal and, and sit on it for days. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I wish I hadn't said that. Who did I affect? We all do it, all of us. But as a collective group struggling together or recovering together, I think that there's some sympathy you know, and within the group, especially during the transition, we saw that. Oh my gosh, so many emotions and so much drama. But then we jump in for each other too. And with Paul too, hey, you're in recovery. Oh my God, Paul Churchill? You mean he's in recovery too? Like, you got to remember that. Powers that be are also in this every day in the trenches. Sensitivity. And I've got to put myself in that category mm-hmm. as well. There was, you know, when we first launched the, the private community in April, we got a couple of cancellations and I knew they would happen, but I'd get an email that said, Hey, I'd like to cancel. Unfortunately, we're, we're getting more subscriptions than cancellations. But the first couple that I get, you know, the whole one day at a time thing just went right out the window. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh no, Oh no. Like my baby, my, and, and you know, I just thought it was all crumbling. And then I thought I was like, Oh, maybe it sucks. Like maybe it's this, that, and this, that. And I finally got the courage to email and be like, Hey, well, what, what, uh, what, 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 you know, and like a long winded email beating around the bush. It's like, how come you're canceling? It's like, Oh, I actually signed up for my brother um, under, under a fake name and my brother's drinking. It's like, that's not a big deal at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's just, we're sensitive people. We are. But I think the other thing that I love about what I've learned in recovery elevator is the generosity. People are so generous with their stories, with their creativity. I mean, mama bear, how inspiring are those stories? Yeah. It's just amazing what we have shared with each other that I don't share on the public page. And yeah, my whole office knows I'm in recovery, but I don't sit and tell them how I hit bottom or how jealous I was last week of my boyfriend. You guys know that. <laughs> and sometimes I think, oh my God, should I actually be putting this out there? But that day I was stuck in the muck. I put that out there and I had the best generous responses genuine responses like it's so cool and there are days where i don't post i'll go a day or two without posting but there is never a day that goes by where i'm not reading the posts and if you're in the recovery community cafe are you right now i gotta say thank you because it is so inspiring to see what people and what adversity people are facing and they make it through sober and sometimes not everybody does make it through sober but people create accountability and they make these videos Mm -hmm. and these statements that takes so much courage to make. They're like, hey guys, I'm back on day one. I'm back that on amazes day zero. me. Every single day that amazes me. I'm like, God bless you for coming back. I don't know if I would. I mean, I would now, that, well, but have. because of this community. Like, I wouldn't walk into the library and go, hey guys, I'm on day one. You know, they'd be like, are you crazy? Who is this crazy lady? But we're, we're in an environment where we can do that. And I personally appreciate when everybody comes back. You know, I, those are the worst dreams that I ever had was when I relapse, but I, I, I know I would have to do the right thing, but I would selfishly create accountability because I, I know if I want to stay sober, if I relapse, I would have to, I couldn't keep that a secret. I couldn't because mm-hmm. that secret alone would cause me to drink one day. Right. It's just been a tremendous learning experience for everybody. 
Um, and let's get to the rapid fire round. I know you did these questions again in episode <laughs> two, but they have changed just a bit, Kelly. So let's go through them one more time. Kelly, what was your worst memory from drinking? That one hasn't changed. That's still the day I hit bottom. Uh, I don't remember all of it, but I do remember my oldest daughter taking pills out of my hands and calling the suicide hotline. And that memory alone could likely keep me sober. It was awful. And it is an incredible short memory. Don't ever forget that memory. No kidding. Next question, Kelly. We've all heard of the aha moment. When or did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you might not be able to control your drinking? Yeah, it was shortly before I had to move out of the house where I had lived while I was married. And my drinking had started accelerating. I was self-employed by then, so I could drink all day if I wanted to. And I remember coming down the steps one morning, and not only were my hands shaking, but my legs were shaking. And I thought to myself, I just if I could just get some beer, I'll be okay. And I knew that was not a rational thought. And I was like, my disease has totally turned on me. Shaking legs down the stairs. I'm like, I wasn't working out. I can tell you that much. That was my aha moment. Or right. oh shit. Yeah, when it goes to, if I could just quit drinking, my life would be okay. To, if I could just get some alcohol inside <laughs> right. me, my life will be okay. And I would. And it was seriously, 10 minutes later, I'd be like, ah. Oh, it worked. And eventually, that's not a good moment. Yep, good moment. It worked, and eventually it all stops working. Mm-hmm. Let's skip a couple, Kelly. And next question. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, honestly, somehow I gained that through our relationship, Paul, is just to shred the shame, beat the stigma down. I never thought I would be so out about recovery as I am now. The best advice I ever had was just to talk about it out loud, use my voice. Yeah, but there's nothing to be ashamed about. And when you're not wearing that thousand pound gorilla on your back walking around in public, it's quite liberating. I I have a t-shirt now. Yeah, yeah. I'd recommend (laughs) giving it a try if if you haven't. And Kelly, before we go, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Mostly I, I keep thinking about getting sober just to open your mouth. Again, use your voice. If you're scared, if you think maybe your drinking's not normal, reach out. You can't do anything about it staying silent. That is for sure. And it just seems to fester. It, it just feels gross when you keep it inside. You've got you to gotta talk about it. Even if sobriety isn't your forever plan, talk about what's going on today. See what's, why you feel like crap today or how you could feel better today. You know, when I went to my first AA meeting, there is no way I thought I would be a lifer there. And maybe I'm not. Maybe I'll outgrow AA. But I thought, well, I'm just going to go to this one meeting. And here I am two years later. Totally embraced it. Board game night with recovery. (laughs) Yeah. Floating the river sober with sparkling water. Never thought I wouldn't have a PBR in my hand. Yep. Listen to the other side. I guess that's the other part of guidance is listen to the sober side of it. Just listen to what we have to say. and, And maybe we might know what we're talking about. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us again. I could not do this without you. Thank you so much. You bet. Thanks, Paul. Damn. Kelly is good. In fact, there's really not much more I can add after that. So I'm going to go ahead and close it out. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 